Hi, this is Mark Nixon, and I'm the writer for today's episode of The Lift, What Are Jelly Babies? If you enjoy the story, you can find more of my work at shadowsofthedoor.com, and you can find more episodes of The Lift at victoriaslift.com. Once upon a time, there was a place that became lost. It is a place where story and substance combine, where the reality of story shapes thoughts, where fantasy becomes tangible. This is that place. Those who find themselves here are here to make a choice. The choices you made in the past don't matter. But the choice you make now is the one that will set your fate. The matter began as these affairs usually did, with the reading of an email arriving in Franklin's inbox during the early hours one frosty October morning. Dear sirs, Please may I bring to your attention the properties listed for offer on lot 36. I think you'll find the opening bid more than agreeable, a demonstration of our desire to wrap up affairs in Pittsburgh and move on to our new offices with haste. Yours faithfully, E.D. Cooper. Franklin leaned back in his chair and scoffed. E.D. Cooper was nothing if not persistent, having inundated the office with offers for this particular collection of apartment buildings for weeks now. The firm had initially sent a polite rejection, having little interest in setting up in that area. But as Franklin sipped on his coffee and reluctantly clicked on the link, his eyebrows defied their usual default scowl and raised in surprise. The offer was low, incredibly low. And while the initial intrigue had almost enticed him, his earlier research into the properties rushed to the forefront of his mind and quickly dispelled any potential interest. Beyond the unattractive condition of the buildings, Cooper's eagerness was suspicious and bordered on desperation. He went to delete the email when he was interrupted by the powerful vibrations of his phone humming on the desk. The screen bore the name of his senior business partner, Dennis Yates. Senior through luck rather than skill. Yates was at best an overly enthusiastic sort. The type to buy now and figure out how to turn a profit later, Yates owed his superiority through a large inheritance left by his similarly motivated father. Franklin stared at the phone and exhaled loudly and deliberately. He knew he would be on a plane to Pittsburgh before the end of the week. Two cabs, one plane, and a train journey later, Franklin arrives in Pittsburgh on October 31st, with no hope of returning back home to Boston until the next morning at the earliest. While the metropolis itself boasts a wealth of all-night-themed parties and the residential areas brim with the laughter of children, it's further west where the roads begin to widen and dip out of sight, where an uncharacteristic stillness envelops the night. Here, the streets are dark and mostly absent of noise, save for the distant roar of traffic along the freeway. The buildings stand as ghosts, seemingly forgotten by a workforce that left mere hours ago. Footsteps of leather soles on pavement echo throughout the lofty, wide streets, 
and soon the weary figure of Franklin appears between the looming fortresses of concrete. He gazes absently at an image on his phone, that of his eight-year-old daughter, dressed as a bumblebee. It explained how she should dress as something scary for Halloween, but she'd insisted on dressing as she did. As he smiles at the dimples on her cheeks, Franklin feels a stab of guilt. He'd promised to be there for her. He switches off the screen, no longer able to bear her beautiful and loving smile. Predictably, Pittsburgh has been a deeply disappointing venture. After the first few initial minutes of inspecting the properties, Franklin had decided to give up after spotting two major building code violations before he even unpacked his briefcase. And now, as he ambles along the sidewalk in search of a cab, Franklin muses on the possibility of a lawsuit against dear old E.D. Cooper. He ponders the details until his clip-clopping footsteps are joined by the shrill tones of his phone's ringtone. He quickly pulls it out and answers. Trick a fucking treat, Dennis, he snaps. As he briefly listens to his so-called partner, Franklin parts his lips in preparation for a scathing response. Oh yeah, very promising. If you're looking to bury half your tenants in an avalanche of drywall and God knows what else. The two business partners exchange in a back and forth that has been performed so often in the past. It may as well be a dance. And you know what makes it fucking worse? Franklin asks, now completely ignoring his ranting partner, his tone now somewhat softer. I told you that I promised Amy I'd take a trick-or-treating tonight. Franklin stops in his steps as he listens to the reply. His eyes narrow. Oh, well, that's very fucking nice, isn't it? Get some fucking kids of your own, Dennis, and then maybe you'll understand. He hangs up the call in a gesture so exaggerated, it looks as if he's about to throw the damn thing away. He looks down the barren roads ahead of him and declares his search a fool's errand. It's time to actually pay the extra and call a cab to him. To hell with the company expenses. As still as the night is, the air begins to stir with the sound of distant partygoers hollering into the darkness. Although it soon becomes apparent to Franklin that as the calls grow closer, they are not the cries of merriment, but of despair. He stops dialing and turns an ear to the cries. Soon, the once faint and almost inaudible wails gather in volume, traveling toward him with the speed of a swift breeze. The rabble of noise seems to dissipate, leaving but one voice, one that seems to reach for him personally, the cries of a child. With some hesitation, Franklin drifts toward the noise and passes through the sides of the buildings. The calling continues to amplify, increasing in an intensity so strong it was as if the child were directly in front of him. He seems to be alone in the streets, yet the presence of the child was unquestionable. With the strength of conviction that only a parent can muster, Franklin's doubt is overridden and his speed increases to an all-out run. He passes through an alley. He comes across a children's park. It makes sense to him that a child might be here, but he is very much alone and as such, he calls into the dark, just to be sure. Hello? He elicits no response. Are you all right? In return, he is answered with an echo, a distorted reverberation of a voice that seems to form from the very air around him. He stands confused, but soon the echoes converge with enough clarity to finally become intelligible. Please help me! 
Please help me. Where are you? He replies. The obscure nature of the discourse is not lost upon him, but urgency overrules his logic. I'm close, came the now more clear reply. The echo seems to shift from all around Franklin until it seems to come from directly behind him. He turns and is greeted by the sight of a grand Victorian-style apartment building several feet in front of him, one he somehow hadn't fully registered when he rushed into the area, despite its grand nature. A flicker of blue light catches his eye on the ninth story, and he looks up toward the illumination as it dances from out of the window. It takes a moment for Franklin to recognize the sparks of raw electricity. As he tries to fathom what exactly is going on inside, an elongated shadow dances upon the walls within the window. It seems to move with little urgency, despite the obvious danger. Hey! calls Franklin. In response, it instantly stops in its tracks and seemingly begins to stretch as the owner moves away from the light and toward the window. The figure appears and leans out to get a closer look at Franklin. With the ever-flickering light behind them, it is not possible for Franklin to make out details, and he could instead only see the silhouette of a stranger as it rests long fingers on the window sill. "'What's going on?' he bellows at the stranger. "'Do you need me to call someone?' Motionless, the stranger simply stares down at him. Franklin squints his eyes as if to make out some hidden detail, but all he can see was that the proportions of the figure seem unnaturally slender. A sense of unease begins to rest upon him, as if he were prey making eye contact with a natural predator. Suddenly, the large glass doors to the building swing open, and the now familiar voice of the child emits from within. I'm inside. Please hurry. Despite the somewhat supernatural events transpiring, Franklin seems unable to avert his gaze from the shadow at the window. Please, I need a friend beckons the voice. Franklin slowly pulls his gaze away from the figure as he walks dutifully to the open doors. As he passes the threshold, he feels a disagreeable sensation hit him instantly. A feeling in his head. A disorientation, like a sudden change of air pressure. It takes a few moments for Franklin to acclimatize to his surroundings, and he holds his head trying to stop the world from spinning. With a drawn-out groan, he lifts his head and looks around. The room begins to steady, and as he takes in his surroundings, he recognizes the layout of a rather typical lobby. Having seen many such rooms in his long career, he finds nothing out of the ordinary other than the somewhat dated decorations and lack of lighting. In fact, the room is completely without power, and the only illumination provided is from the street lamps outside. The light seems to be enough, and via the dim glow, he can see to his left a grandly decorated elevator, coupled by a narrow stairwell. Before long, a sound directly above him draws his gaze toward the ceiling. A resonance of banging, like that of pipes cooling down, but somehow very much not like the natural movement of a building. Something far more heavy and deliberate. As he lowers his gaze, he catches the sight of a little girl creeping down the stairs. No older than nine or ten, she walks a tad uneasily, the steps seeming almost alien to her. Upon reaching the bottom, she seems to congratulate herself before returning her attention 
to her guest. As she enters what little light there is, Franklin sees telltale glistening on her cheeks and puffiness around the eyes. Having seen the same looks of distress on his own daughter after a fright or even a tantrum, Franklin, immediately forgetting his disorientation, slowly drops to one knee and offers her his best smile. Hey, sweetheart, you okay? He asks as softly as he can. His tone carries the accents of sympathy, but he keeps it reassuring, as if to tell her there are no monsters under the bed. The child wipes her cheeks, suddenly self-conscious, and returns the smile. Thank you for coming. Her voice lands uneasily upon his ears, sounding unearthly, yet still very much that of a young child. No problem, he replies. Immediately a thought seems to strike him, and he continues and adds, Victoria? Although surprised at his own revelation, the girl, or Victoria, folds her arms and smirks, clearly proud of herself. She takes a few steps toward him. You understand, don't you? I, uh, I think I do, he replies, much to his own surprise. Then, standing upright, he surveys the darkened lobby and tries to offer a sense of authority. The building isn't working the way it's supposed to, is it? He continues incredulously. The last of the unease he has experienced since entering the building begins to wash away. Like he'd been walking on sand all day and is only now finding firm footing. That's right. Victoria responds, cocking her head as she scrutinizes her new friend. He seems to be acclimatizing well. Was that you upstairs? No. The two suddenly stop. As somewhere distant in the building, there comes a loud noise. A knocking, almost jaunty in its nature. Taunting. Looking back down to his new companion, Franklin sees her wide-eyed fear as she looks toward the ceiling, her arms gripping each other. Hey, he says, waving a hand to gain her attention. It's just the pipes. But he is interrupted by the second very deliberate sound above them. A large shifting of movement, followed by a horrific tearing noise. The lights of the lobby flicker to life, but quickly grow brighter until the two have to close their eyes. Soon, as if too much power is fed into the light bulbs, they smash, causing Victoria to gasp, and the room is once more plunged into darkness. A distant echo resonates through the building, a noise Franklin could swear is laughter. Slowly, it dies away. His unease, however, does not. We are not alone, are we? I'm usually mostly alone, she replies, struggling to get the words out. But there are others who live here. Others I don't know about. You mean people in parts you don't know about? No, this place is my home. It's not a normal place, but it's mine. The thing is, it doesn't play by the rules. And it can do things even I don't completely understand. Sometimes the doors lead to a room I want to go. She hesitates. And sometimes they lead to somewhere else. In the lift, I know exactly where it will go. But earlier today, I opened the door to a place that felt different. Different? Franklin asks, almost with dread. I think one of the rooms was linked to somewhere it shouldn't. And now, and now maybe something got out of the room when I ran off. 
ran off. I knew it wasn't meant to be there, so I ran. Hey, that's okay. Grown-ups get scared, too. I know that. Believe me. But this is different. Whatever got out of there is breaking whatever it can find. If it breaks too much, then it can break the building entirely. And we don't want that. Trust me. She put her hands into his. I wouldn't want to release anything that came from in there. I tried to go back up there, but the power went out. I don't like the dark. Not when my lift is broken. The most human thing in the world is to want to protect the child. And in a parent, this instinct overrides any known force on this earth. His fear of whatever he may find upstairs seems to disappear in that moment. And the decision to help Victoria is instant. Right then, he begins to ask, What do you need? Victoria smiles. I just need you to lock away whatever is up there. Find it and lock it in the room. Then the building will fix itself. A series of loud tears rattles through the building once more. And Franklin finds his newfound heroism sweep out of him at an alarming rate. Um, sure, he acknowledges. Victoria runs over to Franklin and wraps herself around his legs. Thank you, and please, please be careful. You're a nice man. You think? She smiles. Absolutely. And so, after spending some minutes discussing the layout of the building and fetching a crowbar for Franklin, though whether this was simply for Franklin's peace of mind or that it could actually deal viable protection was not Victoria's place to say. His first tentative steps into the darkness is followed swiftly by the most unusual shrieking noise from high above. A shrieking too animal to be human, but too malevolent to be beast. If there had been any doubt in Franklin's mind, it was now gone. The thing upstairs was of unearthly or even unholy origin, and it meant to bear him harm. Against his natural instincts, he takes another step, and his bravery is rewarded with silence. He looks back on Victoria once more and offers a smile. She smiles in return, but as Franklin turns and continues his ascent, he cannot help but remember the quivering of the girl's lips as they had tried to form the necessary shape. Soon he disappears from sight, and his presence is replaced by the steady echoing of his steps as he continues upward. Victoria, watching on, almost begins to relax, before the harsh shrieking and tearing cuts through the night, causing her to flinch. As her new friend seems to disappear into the noise, she wonders if she will ever see him again, and if she will ever be able to live with herself if she does not. The rattling disturbances of the building continue to haunt the stairwell, but Franklin's journey past the first two stories of the building had been met without incident, beyond the occasional slip and fumble. But as Franklin reaches the third floor, he is greeted by the vision of a long and darkened corridor. In the midst of the shadows, he suddenly stops as he catches sight of a solitary figure standing in the darkness. Whether it can see him or not, he cannot tell nor does he care to find out. Instead, he grips harder onto his would-be weapon and resumes his path up to the fourth floor with as little noise as he can. He steals a glance behind his back as the stairs begin to turn a corner and could swear he sees a pair of eyes looking up at him from the stairwell archway. As Franklin continues, he is satisfied to realize that he is alone in his ascent. 
and the watcher below remains just a spectator. With growing unease and faster speed, he passes the fourth, fifth, and sixth floors, hearing the same noises throughout the building, only louder. He pulls on his tie to loosen it, as the flights of stairs begin to take their toll on the office-bound property dealer. The throbbing of his heart and blood rushing in his ears becomes a swelling noise that he cannot ignore by the time he reaches the fifth story, and he stops to catch his breath. He was almost grateful for the distress going on within his body, but if only it could drown out the ever-present demented noises of the intruder above. Upon eventually reaching the seventh story, Franklin's attention is caught by a scurrying of movement toward the end of the darkened hallway. And although he has heard many strange things in the building, Franklin at first considers the presence to be merely that of a dog. Indeed, the movements are erratic, accompanying the scuttling of nails on the thinly carpeted floor. Soon, he hears the tearing of something being pulled apart. The source of destruction is soon revealed as the would-be canine seemingly succeeds in pulling several wires from the wall, ripping their way along the dusty wallpaper and clay walls as they are torn out. The hallway is suddenly illuminated by strobed lighting as the snap and sparks of loose electricity escape from the copper housing. It is in this moment that Franklin is forced to dispel his previous notion, and his eyes are greeted by the true sight of the creature at the end of the hall. No dog could use a paw, no, an arm, to pull the wiring out. And indeed, these events have so clearly transpired as the wires sit still gripped by long and pale twig-like fingers. And the arm itself, or the elongated idea of an arm, is seemingly nothing but bone and lean muscle. The thing, so impossibly beast-like in appearance, somehow possesses an unmistakably human quality. Whatever this abomination is, it had started life as a man. Franklin involuntarily gasps in an expression of pure shock, his body now experiencing a new echelon of sheer terror in the time it takes for a second to pass. In the dying moments of light, the thing that has been preoccupied with sabotage turns and looks directly at him. Shaggy, black strands of hair dangle greasily from its large, almost pointed head, while inexplicably sharp-edged ears protrude prominently from the thin hair. The eyes, which glare toward him with an intensity only amplified in the harsh blue strobing light, meet with Franklin's, and though he is unable to avert his gaze from the fiery orbs, Franklin can tell that the creature is beginning to smile. The last of the electricity sparks out of the wiring, and then the hallway is dark again. Franklin's heart feels as if it is lodged into his very throat, as if each beat causes the damn thing to jump further up his gullet. The fear paralyzes him as he dares not move in the darkness. The unnatural beast he first glimpsed through the ninth-story window has made its way down to meet him, and now it shifts even closer, only a few yards ahead. If Franklin doesn't escape, the game is surely over and Victoria will be next. Franklin! Victoria half whispers, half shouts up the stairs. Franklin! The sound of Victoria's new friend's journey up the stairwell had faded some time ago, leaving the child to simply pace about the lobby, 
occasionally glancing upward as the briefest flickers of light frequent the building. And though she is quite used to waiting for her guests to find their own way around the building, now she stands powerless and alone. In a rare moment of her unnaturally long life in this place, she once again feels like a child. It's been a long time since she's felt this way. But even she needs to remind herself from time to time that she is no mere child. With a resolution to help her guest, Victoria lifts herself onto the stairs and makes her way upward. Please be okay, Franklin, she whimpers. I'm so sorry I sent you up there. The insidious noises up high in the building have quieted now, leaving Victoria alone with her thoughts as she traverses up the stairs. But the quiet causes her to feel quite uncomfortable, and in the silence comes only a sensation of certainty that she had sent a good man to his death. She counts every step, as if the task will restore some normality to her senses, passing entrances to corridors and ignoring them, whether they be illuminated or remain enshrouded in darkness, she continues, resolute. Yet every so often, her concentration breaks, and the certainty of Franklin's demise is brought to the forefront of her mind. No, she has to focus. She needs to be brave. 255, 256, 257. As she climbs higher, focusing on each step, she casts her eyes upward and sees across the dimly lit stretch of stairs a figure standing on the stairwell. Franklin, she wonders. Perhaps not. There is someone looking down at her. Of only that, is she sure? The notion, however, that Franklin would simply be standing waiting for her was, of course, unlikely. Dread begins to fill her instantly. Despite the fact that it only works as intended when the building works, she still misses her music box and wishes she hadn't left it behind. How long has she controlled this place? Did everything within the building bear good intentions toward her? Surely not. Relief comes in the form of a gesture as the figure raises its right arm and points down the hallway to the side. And then, completely without sound, it walks away up the stairwell and is enveloped by the darkness. Victoria smiles. Victoria smiles. Perhaps it had been an old friend or a previous guest who had chose to stay, becoming something else entirely. It had been known to happen. Passing through the doorway, she immediately sees a shape in the darkness. Franklin. He sits, slumped against the wall, cold sweat running down his forehead. And, although there is little light to immediately reassure him that the approaching figure is Victoria, he nonetheless remains at ease. The building can no longer provide greater horror than the one he has already seen. In her haste to check on her new friend, Victoria's foot makes contact with the shape of a hand on the floor. Looking down, she shrieks at the elongated and pincer-like fingers. She takes a step back instinctively as she surveys the beast laying dead on the floor. The thing that had threatened to not only destroy her home, but to release every dark force it contained lay with the left side of its face shattered, giving the head an oddly hollow appearance. She looks to Franklin, who suddenly realizes such a sight is not suitable for a child, ignoring the truth about the girl. He releases his grip on the bloodied crowbar as she helps him to his feet, a gesture more kind than practical due to her short stature. 
She allows him to cover her eyes. Maybe he needed to be a dad right now. A glint of silvery light dances from the small round object in the creature's hand, and Franklin leans in closer and reaches for it. Is that a pocket watch? He wonders aloud. Victoria takes his reaching hand in hers and pulls him forward. You don't want that. Trust me. Besides, it's got a scratch on it. Franklin casts one last glance over his shoulder at the creature and the object in its grasp, and he allows the tiny girl to lead him away. As the two hold hands and walk down the corridors, the lights begin to slowly come alive with a dull glow as the building begins to restore itself. You know, she says, breaking the silence, I think I have a massive bag of jelly babies somewhere for your little girl. Oh, that'd be lovely, he replies, a weary tone about him. Then, as they walk along, he says, What are jelly babies? Thank you for listening to our Halloween episode of The Lift. If you enjoyed today's episode, join us again for the next fantastic episode in two weeks. Today's episode featured a story by Mark Nixon, What Are Jelly Babies? If you'd like more information on Mark and his work, please visit him at shadowsatthedoor.com and follow him on Twitter at shadowsatdoor. Artwork for today's show was created by Jeanette Andromeda. If you'd like more information on Jeanette and her work, please visit horrormade.com and follow her on Twitter at horror underscore made. Please help others find our little lost place. Share the show and help us grow. The best support you can give us is to retweet, repost, and share the link to victoriaslift.com. And of course, this episode with your friends. If you like this episode, send us a tweet or an email. Let us know. Follow us on Twitter at Victoria's Lift and find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Victoria's Lift. You can subscribe to the show in Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or Google. For those of you with a podcatcher, the feed for this show is feeds.feedburner.com forward slash Victoria's Lift. Coming soon to iTunes. All works read in this audio recording and associated music and artwork are copyright of their respective creators and may not be used in any form without their permission. Dramatic reading performed by Daniel Foytek. That's me. The voice of Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes was performed by Amber Collins. The lift opening theme music was composed and recorded by Kimberly Henninger and Sean Park of Cathedral Sounds, cathedralsounds.org. The Lift closing theme music was composed and recorded by We Talk of Dreams. WeTalkOfDreams.com This episode was scored by Stephen Matico of WideEyedOtter.com You can also follow Steve on Twitter at S underscore Matico. 
Incidental music for this episode was performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and used with his permission. Check the show notes for titles and credits. The Lift is a Ninth Story Studios production, ninthstory.com. Creator and producer, Daniel Foytek. Executive producer and co-creator, Cynthia Lohman. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at victoriaslift.com forward slash S1E0. I can help you. Can you hear the music? It's time. I am here. I got it. Who made the choice? Can you see me? Can you see me?